episode 253, How to Use Health IT to Help Patients and Providers Collaborate. Today, I speak with George Matthew, MD, MBA, FACP, and Chief Medical Officer Americas over at DXC Technology. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Right now, I am in the middle of rereading The Innovator's Dilemma, that seminal work by Clayton Christensen. I'm at the chapter right now where he talks about resources, human and otherwise, processes, and values. These three things are the trifecta that determines what any organization can manage to achieve or not achieve, as the case may be with disruptive technologies. Here's where this is relevant to health IT. You can have the most dedicated team who has built out and proven a digital tool that meaningfully improves patient outcomes and that patients embrace. But if the organization surrounding that team does not have the processes and the values that support this team, the effort will, at best, be suboptimal. Today, I speak with George Matthew, MD, MBA, FACP, and Chief Medical Officer Americas over at DXC Technology. We talk today about the why and the how of patient-provider collaborations when it comes to digital tools. We spend some time on the process prong of Clayton Christensen's trifecta. From there, there's news you can use, like what's going on with the FDA pre-cert program. And then we also get into how digital tools are being inserted into clinical workflows to greater or lesser effect. I can probably also claim that we free will our way through some resources and some values advice, but at a minimum, we touch on a number of adjacencies to the process of creating and deploying digital tools effectively, including the why of it all. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. George Matthew, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me. You had mentioned the FDA pre-cert program. Do you want to explain a little bit? Like, what is that? What's the 101 there? When we talk about the pre-cert program in general, right, it's a fairly new program. I think they started, was it two years ago? Two, three years ago. And, you know, the whole concept was when you're talking about drugs or devices, typically you think of clinical trials, right? You do the initial pre-clinical stuff. You determine if it's safe for people. That's usually, you know, your phase one. And then your two and three, you start looking for outcome and efficacy, right? How good is the drug? Does it really do what it say it's going to do, right? And that's a typical stepwise fashion. Now that you've got digital therapeutics, it's a little harder and a little easier to do because on the one hand, you need to compare it to what's the gold standard. If I'm using an app for depression or anxiety, well, probably going to compare it to drugs that exist out there. And there that has its own inherent biases. But I guess the other thing is you've got an opportunity with digital therapeutics that you don't have with drugs typically or with medical devices a little bit, but mostly with drugs you don't have, which is it's a device. That means there's data coming in, a con constant stream of data. And if you really want to kind of get some of that out there, you could potentially pull that data almost real time and use that to evaluate the efficacy of the digital therapeutic. That's one thing about it. I think the thing, though, when you look at the typical clinical trial process in a digital health startup, it's very cost prohibitive to try to run a clinical trial. If you look at any biotech company or you know any healthcare company, you know, running a trial, what was it? I think Tufts said that a drug trial costs in the $3 billion range. 
for a new drug. Now, there's other factors involved, like, you know, they'll take a million drugs in phase zero, and then only a percentage of that survived phase one, percentage of phase two, and that clocks into three billion. But if you're a digital health startup and you're trying to run a clinical trial, you're going to blow all your money on trying to run one of these trials instead of actually developing the code and trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. And I think the collaboration piece comes from uh, Bakul Patel, who runs it over at the FDA. He saw there was a lot of benefit from what Silicon Valley does with, you know, move fast, break things. There's obviously some downside, as we saw with Theranos, but for the most part, he didn't want to inhibit that entrepreneurial spirit. So what he thought we could do, based on the fact that all this data is, you know, readily available and can be collected quickly, along with this, you know, concern about making things too cost prohibitive for digital therapeutics, was what if we partnered with a lot of companies that are trying to get into digital health now and came up with standards that could be used to evaluate these companies as they develop digital therapeutics. And then we evaluate the digital therapeutic solutions that they have. So the pre-cert program, when it started out, had a bunch of large and small companies that were chosen to kind of be their initial trial groups to evaluate the companies for factors of success. Like, you know, do you have a compliance structure? Do you have an operational structure? Are you known reputationally for having good code? but then also work with them directly as to how to pull data from them on a regular basis and evaluate their digital therapeutics. So that instead of having to wait through the entire process, provided certain safety standards are in place, you could put something on the market and evaluate it in the market with the idea that if it's safe and effective, you can scale it quickly. And if it's not safe, you can pull it quickly as well. Let me just clarify here. There's two pieces to this that are parts of this FDA pre-cert program, as you described. The first Mm -hmm. one is, like, let's make sure this thing wasn't built by a Russian hacker. (laughs) Let's make sure that there is some... They're um, credible. That they're credible, (laughs) right. So, like, that's kind of the baseline. You got to get through that turnstile before you can move on. But then the next turnstile is there's some sort of maybe underpinning of infrastructure that has been created so that a digital therapeutic that is going down this path can hook their code, their product up to this database structure Mm -hmm. such that as the tool is being used by some pioneering providers, I'm assuming, that basin database, I'm not sure what to call it, is collecting and processing the data you know, which also is a third party, you know, maybe it's a little bit more credible that way. Did I describe that right? Or Pretty much, pretty much. The database around the FDA is called the Hives, where they pull in all the data so they can review over it and whatnot. That might but be a yeah. little bit better term than the <laughs> basin, I... but <laughs> same line. Wait, but the same concept. <laughs> but, you know, this is from September of 17. They selected out of over 100. Apple was one of those companies. J&J, Samsung, Verily, right? But then you had smaller startups like Pear Therapeutics. I think Fitbit was actually selected, Tidepool, Phosphorus. So they tried to get the wide gamut of folks because they realized that they had to be able to allow for different size companies to be successful. They didn't just want the big companies that had deep pockets to work, and they didn't want the little companies to kind of slip through the cracks and potentially not do things properly. And, but that's where the collaboration piece comes in. They're taking commentary from these companies as they give through the process saying what works, what doesn't, and let's modify the process as we go forward. And that's all because they're keeping an, an open ear and an open mind to what works and what doesn't. So these hives, I mean, basically the FDA is going to wind up with this aggregated data set 
with Uh results from all of these different digital therapeutics. So they would be able to, obviously they're for all different things, but let's just pretend that you get three digital therapeutics in the same sector, you know, the same Uh subspecialty. You should be able to rank order them because you're collecting the same data from each. Yeah. And if you can imagine doing predictive analytics on that data too, right? And again, I, I don't know for certain this is going to the hives. I know that they have a database that they use for a lot of their evaluations. It may be a section from the hives or they may be outsourcing. I, that part I don't know. And I don't know if that's been publicly stated either. I just do know that there is the existence of the hives and they use it for all their, their drug development. That's pretty amazing data to have because now you can start rank ordering, as you said. You can predict success rates. You may even be able to use it to kind of like guide along development of things in the future just because you're collecting this really massive data set. Let's go back to talking about the development of these digital therapeutics, because there are a couple of barriers here, which we definitely probably should mention in the interest of completeness. There have been, I can think of three examples off the top of my head, actually, where The patient has benefited where outcomes were actually better if a patient used a set of, you know, like a a digital protocol. Like I'm specifically thinking of some of the heart failure initiatives where patient went discharged from the hospital, got a scale and they got a blood pressure cuff and they got a few things. And the instances of heart failure readmission plummeted and the patients did better just, you know, from an outcome perspective. Mm-hmm. And those programs were halted because the provider organization found that they were making less money. Because admissions went down, sure. Because the admission penalties are like, you know, what is it, 3% of overall revenue max? Didn't match what they were losing from the typical fee-for-service. Yeah, Exactly. So, you know, there's an instance where, you know, if the patient and provider collaborated to produce better healthcare outcomes, those programs would be all across the country, but they're not. And, I, you know, I don't want to be overly cynical here, but potentially the fact that you can make a whole lot more money by having an inpatient with a very serious condition requiring a lot of medical care. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that mix is still in the process of being changed. I think that's one of the reasons why the uh, CMS is trying to push bundled payments on hospitals and they're fighting back very hard. But it's if we look at it, right, from just a typical organizational point of view, there's the financial incentives, which are obvious, right? It's like, look, if you get paid more for doing more, it's hard to kind of all of a sudden try to switch over, especially when your reimbursement models haven't switched. But if you look underneath that one layer, there's more cultural and organizational stuff that needs to change as well. A lot of folks are stuck in the way of doing things they've always done it. I love my dad to death. You know, he just finished practicing 51 years. One of the reasons he left was that, look, things are changing and I don't want to change. I like to do things the way I've been doing them because I've been doing it for 50 years. If you spread that out across a lot of organizations, you know, obviously I'm in an IT company, but one of the first things I talk about with the clients are, let's say we propose or design a brand new process or change. How are you going to do the change management? How are you going to account for the cultural change? And there's crickets a lot of the time. And many of the senior execs are just trying to keep the hospital going. So when it comes to trying to get involved with an innovation initiative or change management or pulling in new digital therapeutic, that whole process is something that's not fully thought through. And that's why even pulling this to a point of, I say, hospitals that originate their own digital therapeutics, incorporating that into the workflow is something that's usually the last thing thought of and probably ends up leading to that digital therapeutic being, you know, expunged, closed down or put away. 
because they haven't gotten buy-in or acceptance from the already existing business line that it affects. Yeah, it's funny because I'm just rereading right now the innovator's dilemma that Clay Christensen <laughs> chestnut. It's funny because I'm right just this morning, actually, on the chapter where Clay is getting into the trifecta of change management, which is mm-hmm. the contemplating resources, i.e. the people, and then the organization's processes and values, which you basically just hit on. And what he says is resources. Like you could have the best people in the world who have hearts in right places, who are forward thinking, but if they're operating within a context in an organization that has embedded processes and values, it doesn't matter how good someone is. They're not going to succeed. The organization will not let them. You've heard the phrase culture eats strategy for breakfast. Apply that to digital therapeutics. And let's say I'm running a CHF program or I'm a cardiologist. I don't like it. I don't want to do it. All right. It's kind of cool, but you know, it's kind of starting to interfere with the revenue I'm making now. I'm going to find a way to sabotage it so I don't have to do it anymore. Boom. Same story. Yeah, exactly. I think the precursors to any digital anything getting put in any workflow are assuring, number one, that someone has thought through at some level what the reimbursement is going to look like and how this is going to impact the reimbursement. But then the second angle is, I'm going to put it this way, making sure that it's proven in the eyes of that cardiologist that you're just talking about. I mean, I I just have to believe that a cardiologist who sees that patient's outcomes are better if you use this modality instead of that one is going to choose the modality that produces the better patient outcome. So can you think of any other way? And unfortunately, I think this is why we have a million apps on the App Store. The main way that seems to have worked, and this is from my own experience doing change management, is getting people to help construct the solution. So, uh, you know, there's no reason that, like, let's say there are four hospitals in a city, like New York City here, right, that every hospital chooses a different app, especially if there's science supporting one or the other. However, if one of those lead cardiologists helped develop one of those apps, they're more likely to promote it in their population. Coincidentally, though, if one of your competitors builds an app, even if there's science behind it, you're less likely to use it because it's their app, not yours. I don't have a good solution for that yet, but it kind of is how it is. Well, I mean, like in some ways, maybe that's not a deal breaker because every hospital in this city and elsewhere has their own workflow that works for them. So it's it's true, but it, it, you know it's funny. Like back in the day, and that wasn't so long ago. This doesn't feel so long ago for me. You know, when new drugs would come out, you'd always see cardiologists that would question it, and they would. I think the stat they would quote would be it would take about two to three years for new study data to disperse out and for people to change their practice. Now we know it takes a little bit longer than that, but at the time, it always seemed weird to me. If the data was there, why wouldn't you just do it? But there is that trial and error period where people they take the study, they adjust it, they understand it, and then they apply it and they see in their own practice it works. Digital therapeutics is a little weirder because depending on how, how you're doing, where you're doing it, there's more of a customization aspect to it, I think. It's not like I can take the drug, at least even in 2019, and modify it for my patient. That might happen in the future, but right now it's not. But for digital therapeutics, yeah, it's kind of dependent on my patient pool. It depends on who I use it on, uh, what data it gets put in and out. There's a lot of ways that you could alter it that makes it more customized. And maybe that might create more of an affinity to it to use it more. Or you just might have some really bad examples, like people that 
do poorly on it or have really bad outcomes that affect you and you never use the app again. Let's just talk about workflows for a second sure. because they have, sure. they've come up several times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is one of the things that clinicians are very rightfully very concerned about. You know, like, are we adding yet another click in the, the workflow that doesn't necessarily add anything to the ultimate patient outcome or the efficiency or ef- efficacy of, of care? Let's look at this in a phased kind of way. Sure. So say like we're at the very beginning of the process and now it is time to see if this thing works and and actually give it to patients. What's kind of maybe that first step, like the first way, the minimum viable product-y kind of way that a healthcare organization might consider deploying a digital tool? I think it was very simply as a three-step process. You know, the first step is if you have a new digital therapeutic and you're trying to build the integration piece to it, the problem is unless there's an API layer that allows that integration to exist, it's an external piece of data that somehow needs to be put into your electronic health record. Because for most hospitals now, that is the biggest investment and that's where most of their data is retained, right? But without that integration to kind of pull it in or pull it in right for that matter, You've got no way to track it. So as a physician in the workflow, you need to find a way to shorthand or, or capture that data. Typically, it would be in the free text field or it'd be in one of the areas where you could actually write in uh, so-and-so's CHF app records that their weights were this, this, and this over the last couple of days, and I see an upward trend or a downward trend. At this level, there's no like integration where I could just build a chart in there. I just literally have to manually type it in. And in those hospitals that don't have that, you know, you're writing it down and hopefully it gets scanned and put in later. But that's step one, somehow getting that information in. Step two then would be the actual integrated piece. And again, I, I want to make sure I'm saying this right. The technology has always been easy. The hard part is the workflow change. We are asking people to take what they normally do day to day and alter it. What we do at my company, we... We actually go through and we interview doctors as to what is your workflow, and we ask them for suggestions of how to modify their workflow first, where to introduce the information from that app to make sure that it flows into their workflow instead of jamming it in there and them having to like click through 15 different pages to figure out where the hell it went. With that in mind, we would pull that information in wherever it works best for their workflow. And this is like a committee decision, right? You can't individualize it for every single doctor, at least not yet. But the goal would be to have that CHF app, for example, that data would code through our interoperability solution, through our API, our Firebase API solution, and pull the relevant data necessary into a point in the electronic health record where I, as a doctor, when I'm looking over and doing the review of systems, or I'm looking through the physical, or I'm looking through the labs, it would go into the spot, probably around the labs or history, and show me this is what the trend has looked like before the visit today. So I can put that together in my head. Okay, so let me just review here. So step one, let's just say there's no integration, but an app is well-proven and somebody wants to use it. The good news and bad news is is that you can start using it relatively rapidly. It's just it's going to require more typing. (laughs) And and it's not really useful, right? Unless somebody does a manual review over the chart, you're never going to find that information in there because it's, it's manually put in there. Unless you've invested in natural language processing and it looks through free text, it's just text in the chart. On the other hand, mm-hmm. not letting perfect be the enemy of the good. Like, sure. That's how notes are getting typed in there now. Like if I, you know, if someone yeah. does a physical exam and they're typing something in, there's not necessarily some kind of trend line that, that comes along with that information either. 
Right. I, again, just going through the stepwise process, it's just, it's more random information that's thrown in there that ne- can't necessarily be trended, analyzed, or, you know, put together in sort of a pretty visual analytic, at least not yeah. the way it is. So it might be a better way, you know, instead of asking the patient, you know, when was the last time you had pain in your abdomen? You, you know what I mean? And just having them try to remember, you know, it might be a, a more accurate way in certain cases to collect necessary information, but it's not necessarily going to be done in a within a analytical opportunity. Let's just put it that way. So then the second way to do it would be that there is, as you described, there's a, an API layer here so that the information can be taken and aggregated. I'm assuming also that when you're talking to the physicians, you're not only asking them where they want in the workflow, but also asking how they would like the data presented, presented. you know, do you want yep. a pie chart, a logarithmic, yep. something or other? You know, you had mentioned that it goes in the electronic medical rec- record by the labs or those kinds. Or, or the history. I mean, I think it depends on the information and the context. If I'm, let's take your CHF example. If I'm tracking weights off of a digital scale, it depends on where these folks would like it. And from a, if I'm taking a history on somebody, I would have written that down as some type of history of present illness that their weight is starting to trend up over the last couple of days. And then, you know, what if I look at labs? It depends on where some of the providers are comfortable putting it because they look for information in different places. And if it's not in the right place or the right context, they're going to miss it. How does that information tend to appear? Just, and I know I'm asking a very general question. And no, it's, because of the complexity of pulling the information in, and we're never 100% confident that we got it right, a lot of the time it's presented as sequential numbers, which it kind of stinks, right? With all the technology we have available to us at the end of 2019, almost 2020, I'm still giving you a list of numbers with dates and saying, doctor's brain, figure it out. Are they going up or down? Now, I should be able to reduce that cognitive overload by putting a visual analytic and a graph over it and saying, see, line go up, line go down over time. But we're never 100% sure that that's how they're going to want it. Plus, one of the reasons it hasn't been done more like that is that a lot of these HR systems are composites, right? They pull in data from multiple systems. And it's very difficult to, you know, one, standardize, homogenize, and then show everything together as, as the same visual analytic. I hear what you're saying. Because the EHR is a composite view, and I know there's all kinds of stuff you can do with permissions and and whatnot relative to like who sees what, but like, so say you're in the pediatric end of things, like is that CHF chart going to show up? (laughs) Um, And sometimes it does. It's not supposed to, but I'll tell you, it's, it's very difficult to have one chart meet multiple departments' needs. Which is why they, you know, they sometimes have specific department charts because there aren't a lot of kids with CHS. <laughs> Let's hope. Kind of bottom line, operationalizing this stuff, we're in the early stages. Is kind of what what I'm understanding that in the development of these things, there's some fantastic digital tools that are well proven that are kind of coming out. But as we start to contemplate how to integrate them into our processes and values. Ella Clay Christensen, that's where there's some barriers that are still pretty high. And, and some opportunities. You know, when I was at HIMSS earlier this year in February, one of the things that I saw that the EHR companies were starting to do, they've kind of pulled back a little bit, was they've kind of realized that UX, for the most part, is not their skill set. They're allowing other companies to come in and build a better user interface on top of their EHRs to allow for streamlining of workflow. In that situation where you have an existing EHR, which is 
great at billing, coding, and scheduling, but not so good at presenting data. To have another company come in and kind of put that layer over it that will do that visual analytics, right? That can pull in the stuff off of a, a wearable that does CHF or a scale and whatnot, and then present it in a way that, you know, again, that whole cognitive overload thing you're trying to avoid. Give it to me so I get in five minutes what it would have taken me 20 minutes to understand what's going on with the patient. I think there is an opportunity there now. And that's where that second step comes in. Yeah. And this, this cognitive load, I heard someone put it this way, that there's a trade-off between clicks and cognitive load. And what a click should enable within the EHR is it to lessen the cognitive load on the clinician. Mm-hmm. You've got clicks, but the clinician still has to remember everything that they walked into the room needing to remember. Then that's a wasted click, y- you know. Right, but but it's also why they're trying to do work, and we're trying to do work as well with clinical decision support. Where it's right now, you have to click through twenty pages of an EHR to get it filled in. What if you just had the salient information, like the five pieces across the 20 pages that help you make a clinical decision? And that's what they're trying to work on now by predictively figuring out are there, or correlatively figuring out, are there patterns? Is this something that if I serve this up to the doc or the nurse or whatnot, that they can see that this is happening and they can make a decision on a patient that helps? I think that's something also that Diameter Health is working on Mm -hmm. with their continuous care records I I interviewed. So let me ask you one more question. There is, you know, we've been talking a lot about providers using patient data, but there's the flip side to this, which is the recent ruling that providers need to give patients back their own information or provider-collected information in the technology of their choosing, I think was the wording. Do you have any insights or thoughts into that? So let's just say within the EHR system, there has been some digital therapeutic that's used that the patient has meticulously collected their you know, blood pressure readings for the past three months. It has gone into the EHR. The clinician has looked at it, looked at that table, say, written some notes about it. Yep. How does that information get back to the patient? Do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, it usually doesn't. When a lot of the notes are written, they're not shared with the patient unless the patient requests it and typically has to pay for it. And there's, you know, like a copy fee or a faxing fee or some other ridiculousness like that. It's been a huge barrier for people to get access to their own records. And I think there is also a hesitance, quite honestly, for a lot of providers to share what they've written, especially when you're talking about folks that have psychological or psychiatric or addiction problems, because it's hard not to look at it as some type of judgmental thing. I don't, I don't know if you recall, there was a Seinfeld episode where Elaine was trying to get a copy of her medical records because yeah. every time she would, you know, hey, can I see, hey, you know, my name's Elaine Bennett. They would look at a record and then the doctor would kind of look at her very furtively and look back down and start scribbling something down. <laughs> and then she'd be like, well, what's going on, doc? He's like, nothing. I think at one point, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think she looked and said, what does it mean that she's troublesome and she asks for a lot of questions? You know, it's that fear that a lot of docs have where up until fairly recently, it's been a private record that the patient really didn't ask for or understand. Now, there are movements like, uh, have, you, have you heard of open notes? Yeah, for sure. Well, what I'm yeah. concerned about is that CMS just made a ruling, and I'm not sure when the start of this is, but it's pretty quick that providers must provide patients their information. They've been required to do it for a while now, even with the Affordable Care Act. The problem is there's been a dragging of the heels, right? You know, from a lot of stakeholders' perspectives, that data is hugely valuable. And according to almost every state except for one, they own it, which is why you get some interesting behavior from some uh, from hospitals where they decide to spin out a digital health startup based on the data of their patients. If I was a patient and I went to that hospital, I didn't go there for you to build a digital health startup off my data. I came for you to help me. If you're going to monetize my data in some way without my permission, 
I'm going to have a problem with that. And I think that's what several hospitals are trying to see right now. But it's like the genie in the bottle option. And I don't think you can put it back in. And people are extremely aware of what's happening with their data. And I think it's the right choice, actually. I think CMS is right. Uh, the timetable, it might be very aggressive. I do think there are companies that are out there that are very, like mine that are willing to help hospitals figure out how to do this right. I think I was telling you, one of our theses, my thesis is that hospitals should become data companies, except for the fact that they work on behalf of their patients and they help patients broker their data and use that financial value to pay, help discount healthcare services at a local population. That way you get that virtuous cycle. So we're out there and we're definitely going out there talking to folks. But, you know, again, for many of the reasons we've talked about today, that's a radical concept for folks. They're very comfortable with the way they've done things for a long time and they don't see why they have to explain to patients why their data is theirs. So talk a little bit about DXC technology and where people can find more information about the work that you're doing. We're an IT vendor. Uh, we do seven or eight sectors. Healthcare is our biggest one of 22, 23 billion top line. Three and a half is uh, healthcare. Two and a half is in the U.S. We have a very amazing legacy of companies that we're, we're a merger from about two years ago of uh, two companies, Hewlett Packard Enterprise Services, which used to be EDS and uh, CSC. Because of that, we do Medicaid claims processing in 29 states. We also do IT support for large hospital organizations like Kaiser Permanente, Intermountain Health, New York Presbyterian. We also support large uh, payers like uh, some of the Blues. And then we work with life sciences companies as well. It's an interesting place to be because as we sit in the center of all this, we're starting to see all of these different sectors, which were kind of separate but dealt with each other because they had to, starting to coalesce a little bit and work together saying, hey, that payer data might be very interesting if we could use it for life sciences research. Or, hey, provider, could we uh, either acquire you or negotiate with you and have you risk gratify your population? Because that'll help us determine how to price these insurance policies. They're starting to come together and coalesce. And what we're trying to do, at least as a theme, is, okay, how do you pull that information together and start making sense of it. What we're trying to do with our version of our flavor of digital transformation, which is a bad buzzword these days, is what is the real problem you're trying to solve? And what's the right process to solve that problem? And do you really need technology? If you do, that's great. Let's figure out the best ways to use it so it meets the problem you're trying to solve. And that's it. DXE.technology. Dr. George Matthew, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. Thank you for having me, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.